Public space is where freedom happens. You think about four tiers of public space, uh, private space, or it's invitation only, uh, permissive space where the owner generally allows people to come in but may decide to kick people out if he needs to for various reasons. Protected public space where there is an easement or right of way for the public access where the owner can necessarily kick people out of public space. Um, an unknown space which is still a space. Uh, there can be various modes of ownership, disorder, simple ownership, complicated ownership between multiple parties, complex ownership between multiple parties, including parties who are undefined, um, and chaotic ownership, which is unpredictable. A libertarian society should have a network of protected public spaces connecting sovereign private properties. So um, this idea that a libertarian society is going to be just private space everywhere and, and every private owner gets to control where everybody goes um, by invitation only. I don't think that's realistic and I don't think it's really useful for a different society. I think you need a network of public spaces connecting um, sovereign private properties. And in terms of divesting government property, government property should be divested to public forms of ownership with protections for established treatments. And my idea of often trust, I say, may be the best method of divestiture. We should fight for a, a free society in which public space exists. Welcome to An Architecture, episode 19. In June, I had the opportunity to give a speech at Porkfest uh, for the second year running. Porkfest is the Free State Project's Porcupine Freedom Festival. Uh, it happens in Lancaster, New Hampshire at a campground. I was there to promote our podcast and also to sponsor the event through my business, Outdoor Architecture. You can hear my speech from last year in our episode 13, as well as our follow-up commentary in episode 14, in which I talked about private ownership of public space. In this year's speech, I expanded on some of the ideas that I had introduced last year, and I think I've made a stronger case here for the need for public space within a libertarian society and how that type of public space might come about and be consistent with property rights and other principles of libertarianism. In doing so, I've also challenged some orthodox ideas of anarcho-capitalism. In particular, I focused on an article by Hans-Hermann Hoppe, from 2011 called Of Private, Common, and Public Property, The Case for Total Privatization. In part, what I'm criticizing is this argument that the only way to avoid conflict is to assign exclusive use, invitation-only property rights for land titles. While that is certainly a necessary component of any free society, it's not a good means for resolving conflict in public space. So ultimately, rather than envisioning a libertarian society in which every piece of property is privately owned and privately controlled by the owner in terms of who gets to access it and who doesn't, I argue that many public spaces have been homesteaded as just that, as public space, and that there should be easements and other legal protections to continue to allow public access and use of spaces like roads, parks, and beaches. This concept of allowing and creating protected public space creates a much more realistic view of a method for divesting government ownership of, of what is now public space to private ownership. 
So I close out the speech by talking about how this type of divestiture might happen and how doing so can best preserve public freedoms that have been established on public space. Also, helicopters. My presentation is about an hour. At the end of it, Joe will come back on with me to break it down a little bit and give his thoughts on some of these topics. Quick note on the sound quality. As is often the case with these live events, it's a little challenging to capture the sound without any background noise. And it actually sounds like there was a lot more activity going on in the tent than what there actually was. Uh, The the microphone was picking up a lot of sound from outside the tent. So you get a little flavor of Porkfest along with my speech. Joe has been able to cut the noise down a bit, uh, but there are a few spots that are a bit distracting, so I apologize for that. If you want to follow along the slides for the presentation, we have a YouTube version of this episode that will include the slideshow that I presented at Porkfest. That includes, along with all my discussion notes, a 3D image of Hoppaville, <laughs> which is my interpretation of Hansamer Hoppa's village that he describes in his article. So here is my speech from the Porcupine Freedom Festival, Public Space, the Missing Link Between Freedom and Property. Before I get into it, I wanted to start with this, this quote that I had in my synopsis, property is freedom. Um, how many people would, would generally accept this or generally agree with, with the intent or the, the, the sentiment of, of this statement? Does this seem to make sense to people? The other part of this, this is a quote from, from Proudhon, property is theft, property is freedom. These two propositions stand side by side, and each is shown to be true. Um, which probably doesn't ring true to a lot of us, but um, I think part of what I'm going to be addressing here today is this idea that by granting somebody property, that it's possible that that is taking some potentially property rights away from, from somebody else. And when we talk about public space and access to public space, um, that's an issue we consider. So as I said, my speech is called Public Space, the missing link between freedom and property. This is an outline of what I'm going to talk about here today. Um, First, public space is where freedom happens. I want to talk about uh, why public space is important to many of the freedoms that we that we enjoy. Um, secondly, I want to talk about uh, Hansel Mahaba has an article called "Private, Common, and Public Property." Um, there's not a lot of discussion in libertarianism about public space specifically. People talk about ways of privatizing roads and privatizing other kind of parts and pieces of what I would call public space. Um, but I'm trying to look at this as an overall organizing principle to, to understand some of those little parts and pieces. And there have been some people that have talked about that. Papa is one of them, and so I'm going to take one of his articles and, and break it down a little bit and um, show what makes sense there and where some of the problems are, because I think it's reflective of some typical ideas that we hear talking about libertarianism and capitalism. And then, of course, since we're talking about Hoppe, unfortunately, we need to talk about helicopters. So I'm going to get into the, the helicopter memes that circulate around Hoppe. And actually, these ideas, I'm going to be talking about public space, um, I believe are, are key to really understanding that whole, that whole issue and to setting other people and also Hoppe himself straight about, about what he calls physical removal. Um, then I want to talk about divesting government property, which is something Hoppe gets into in his article. Um, how can we divest what is now public space, things like roads and parks? Um, how should those be divested? And then opt-in trust is my preferred method of divesting government property, which all the time is really long. Um, so first of all, 
Um, actually, if any of you saw my speech last year at Corkfest, I, I, I touched on a lot of these topics, but I'm coming at it from different angles here. But this is something I definition I put up last year. Public space is space that is accessible to non-owners without invitation with reasonable restrictions. So often when we think of private property, um, we, one of the fundamental components of that is that private property owners have the right to evict or restrict access um, to whoever they want um, on their property. The idea of public space is that there can be space where potentially the owner of that space does not have that right to necessarily evict people. So public space is not always public property. Um, there's lots of public space that is privately owned, things like grocery stores and movie theaters and baseball stadiums and museums. There are many types of public space, uh, open space like parks and beaches, buildings, of course, as I grocery stores and theaters, pathways, which is roads and maybe waterways, things like that, ways to get around and other properties. Uh, public spaces can have various degrees of access with permission, so it's not a black or white thing where like, a given piece of property is either a public space or it's not, it's totally private. Uh, there are varying degrees of, of what people being allowed to access the space and what they can do once they're on the space and free to have the space. Public spaces can have restrictions on entry and occupancy, so you might charge fees for people to access the space, there might be certain hours that you can go into a park or something. Um, there might be certain uses that are allowed or not allowed, um, and there might be certain behaviors that are that are regulated by various rules. Um, so private facilities have public space components, so even something like a private office building might have a public lobby, and there's an expectation of entry on many properties in your own in your own home. Um, most people have the expectation that they can come up and knock on the door and move your bed. Public space is where freedom happens. Uh, I want to talk about some various freedoms that we all, I don't say granted, that we all respect and desire, and why public space is important um, to exercise those freedoms. Um, so one is probably the most important here is freedom of movement, which is being able to access and um, to enter and exit spaces, as I said, with reasonable restrictions. This picture here is obviously the Lincoln Memorial, and if you can read the sign in front of it on this barricade, it says, this site is closed, do not enter. And of course, you can see all the people who have completely ignored the sign and gone past that. This was in 2013 during one of the government shutdowns. I happened to be in, in D.C., and um, the whole mall, they have these barricades that around all the monuments, and everybody just, nobody gave it any credence to this, all walking around. It's a beautiful display of of civil disobedience and, and an assertion of rights to public space. When we talk about freedom of movement, it's not only being able to go through a space, but also potentially being able to stay there and occupy it and use the space. Um, and of course, there are implications then for immigration, which we will get into a little later on. Uh, freedom of speech. Um, obviously, public space is a place where people can have the opportunity for public speaking, um, to draw an audience. To spread a message, share pamphlets, hold signs, have information booths. Um, public space is really important. Less, maybe less than nowadays with the internet, but um, traditionally public space has been very important to people spreading ideas freely. Uh, this photo is from uh, an area in London's Hyde Park called Speaker's Corner, which um, in uh, maybe the 17th century or so was designated as a protected space where anybody could literally get up on a soapbox and, uh, and speak to, to whoever was there or whatever they wanted. Uh, freedom of association, 
uh, public space is often where we are meeting with other people, where we are assembling with other people, where protests might be organized, and even just something politically charged, something like a block party or a parade or a bike race, other kinds of special events. Um, public spaces are often uh, valuable for, for all these kinds of events. People getting together. Uh, freedom of exchange. Things like farmers markets, obviously you need some space to have that in. So photo here, you see all the cars with all the clothes and things. And, uh, this is a boot sale, which is something they do in England. In England, the boot is uh, the front of your car. And this is a pretty regular institution um, where you know, every Sunday, um, anybody who wants to go and park their car in some designated parking lot. And it's basically like a big flea market where people just back up their car, open the trunk, and uh, pull out whatever, whatever they want to sell. Um, so it's a really nice kind of informal uh, marketplace that, that emerges in these public spaces. Obviously, food trucks take advantage of public space. Sidewalk entrepreneurship is this idea. This is something I observed, um, particularly while I was traveling in the Dominican Republic. Uh, one example uh, was outside of the grocery store. There was a guy sitting on a five-gallon bucket on the sidewalk, dangling a big shrimp in the air. And, of course, he had you know, caught the shrimp that morning, and if you wanted, you could go over to him and you know, give him a couple bucks, and he would open the bucket and pull the shrimp out and hand shrimp, and, and that was his business. And so having the, the access to the sidewalk there, to that, that public space, allowed him to act as an entrepreneur and to, to run his business. Public spaces are important for peer-to-peer -peer exchange. Um, the example I get here is I've heard that in the early days of Bitcoin, um, people used to meet in public parks in order to exchange bitcoins with each other before they knew whether they would be illegal or not. And of course, public parks have and you know, street corners have often been popular places for various kinds of peer-to-peer exchanges uh, over the years. A freedom to bear arms and, and to self-defense. Um, I haven't thought too deeply about this, but I had two points I wanted to make here. Um, obviously, in any society where there is a, um, a freedom to bear arms, um, on your own private property, you'd be able to get your own weapons to your property. Um, so there should be some consideration of at least transporting weapons on the public space of the roads. Another point is in public space, you know, if you go to something like a baseball stadium or maybe even movie theaters, uh, sometimes there might be restrictions on, on guns into, into a building or into a facility or in a public park or something. I would make an argument that if, if an owner, a property owner, is going to restrict somebody's ability to defend themselves in certain spaces, then they're assuming some liability for that person's security. So, um, not a strong case, but I'm just saying that if, if someone's going to restrict somebody's right to um, declare weapons in the property, um, that there should be some consideration that they are then become liable for their security in that space. This is the the big idea I want to kind of promote about understanding public space and what it means to freedom. So I'm talking about four tiers of public space. The four tiers here are tier one is private space, tier two is permissive public space, tier three is protected public space, and tier four is unknown public space. So in tier one private space, this is what we traditionally think of as private property. It's invitation only. The owner has eviction rights. This is very important in any free society because it provides a maximum amount of freedom for that property owner. However, on that property, um, it provides minimal freedoms for, for the public, for anybody else who owns that property. The owner can evict at any time, so he can really 
control what you do or what you don't do on that property. So, yeah, it's very important to have that private space, but uh, there are also issues with, uh, it also takes freedoms away from other people. Permissive public space is, again, privately owned space that has public access and uses permitted by the owner. So this is something like, again, a grocery store or a movie theater. It's privately owned, but anybody can walk into it. There's an expectation that anybody can walk in and do what they need to do and leave. However, um, that access right is revocable. The owner could decide to, uh, to kick people out if you want to for whatever reason. Um, the next category is what I'm calling protected public space. Um, the idea here is that there's some legal protection for public access to these spaces. Um, so this could be right-of-way easements or other legal rights. The idea here is that the property owner can't take, can't take away these freedoms. They can't revoke these access rights and other, potentially other freedoms like freedom of speech, um, freedom of exchange, all these other things that we just talked about that happen within public space. Um, it's possible to have public spaces that have some degree of protection for those um, access rights. And then finally, unknown public space, if this is kind of a state of nature where there's no ownership claim to be made, um, this provides maximum freedom for the public, uh, but it also introduces a potential for, for conflict because it's essentially the, the tragedy of the commons argument. So to sum up that section, uh, we should fight for a, a free society in which public space exists. And then the question becomes, given that so much public space is now owned by governments and controlled by governments, um, how do we divest that public space from government ownership control while preserving all of these freedoms that happen within public space? In other words, it's not as simple as just taking a government road and it over to a corporation. As I described here, I think there should be some protections in place for these public freedoms. And so an example of how we can understand these things is this article, as I said, by Hans Hoppe called um, A Private, Common, Public Property and the Rationale for Total Privatization. Privatization. Uh, this is a 2011 article in, uh, I think, whether we do this. Um, in this article, how about three things he talks about. The first is defining why, public, why private property is important. The second is um, defining the difference between what he calls private, common, and public property. Um, and then he talks about methods of privatizing This is a quick summary of Papa's argument for property ownership. Uh, physical conflicts, oh, what he's trying to avoid with property ownership is, is physical conflict. These are physical conflicts that are scarce but can, can be avoided if every good is exclusively controlled by some specific, specified individual group. And then to avoid all physical conflict from the beginning of mankind, all property must go back to the chain of conflict-free property transfers to acts of original appropriations. Um, so essentially he's talking about setting that that should be the basis of legitimate property ownership. Um, and then he gives this example of a village. He says, you can think about these things in terms of a village. What happens when a road is developed in that village, and then the conflicts developed in that road where it's getting crowded, um, it's getting too much wear and tear, and somebody needs to do something with the road, the road needs to become their own. So I'm going to kind of walk through this, this example of, of the village here. As you can see, I have these pretty graphics here. Um, so this is, first of all, an unowned, unused land in a state of nature. There's a, let's say there's a lake, and maybe an opening to it. Eventually people find it, and they start to carve a path um, through to the lake. So nobody's really claimed this land yet, but you can see that, that there is a path being worn through it, and there is some use of this space, even though nobody's, nobody's claiming any ownership. So in this case, this is still all that tier, what I'm calling tier four, unowned 
public space. Then somebody might come along and decide that they want to build their property there. So now this, this private property, it's colored in red, is what I'm calling tier one private space. So this is a traditional private property. Um, someone else might have the same idea, build another house. You get the picture here that enough people come along and all of a sudden we have a, a whole village develops um, around this pathway to the lake. And I will say that my architectural design is generally better than this. This is better than this. So here we have this whole village that's grown up around this this pathway, but the pathway is still not owned. And what Hoppe says is that eventually you're going to have conflict happening within that pathway. It's too crowded. Um, the road's getting all beat up. Um, people are parking their cars everywhere. And nobody's taking care of it. So it says what needs to happen is that Somebody needs to come in and claim ownership of that road. He says what typically happens is you have the villagers, let's say, form, decide that they're going to form a government in order to own that road. So they all get together and say, we're going to create this institution called the government, and that's what's going to own the road. Now the problem here is that the government, in doing this, gains a lot of power over the villagers. Um, they restrict their access to the road, or they, they control their access, which means they're setting rules and regulations about how that space is used. They're controlling any commercial activity and development on that street. They might be requiring payment from people, which could be user fees, or more commonly, as you know, is, is just taxes, just taking money from people unrelated to their use of the road. They do not allow exit from ownership, so if somebody says, you know what, this, this road ownership business isn't working for me, I'm going to get out of it. They went to the village, they don't have the opportunity to extract themselves from the responsibilities and costs of ownership. And most importantly, by taking over ownership of that road, the government gains control over the abiding private property. Essentially, the, the, private, the abiding properties are encircled where they can't get off the property without going through the government's property. So, this is how I illustrate that here. Um, let's say we built the road down the middle. And this could be a combination or one or the other of what I'm calling tier two permissive public space, where these people have gotten together and you know, the government owns that space, they own the road, but they're allowing people to use it. Um, or there could be some degree of, of protections of formal easements built in for the villagers that would be beyond the control of the government. So um, it's not a great situation, but it gets them a road. And unfortunately, it also gets in the government that may have some degree of control over that unit. So, what Hobbes says is a better solution is to have homesteaded private property. He says you don't need a this whole organization of the government to do this. All you need is somebody to go out and start making improvements to that road, repairing potholes, um, and then that grants by doing that, that individual has homesteaded the road. He becomes the owner. Now, Hobbes sees this as a better solution. I think. That's not quite right. There's a problem here. It says, you can see I have the same the same uh, issues up that I had under government ownership, but I replaced the word government with the owner. Uh, he can still restrict access by the village of the He still set rules and regulations. Still controls the commercial activity, requires payment, doesn't allow, in this case, joining ownership. And he gains control over the abiding private property, just like the government organization did. So in this case, this is a worse scenario than the government, because it's really no protection for, um, for the villages here, Jackson said. And Hop realizes 
realizes this is a problem. So what he says is, what we need here is we need to find easy. So we need to say that that recognize that the villagers have been using this road, that that use has granted them some some property rights, even though they haven't claimed ownership of it. Um, so we're going to grant them the seed. Well, that solves one problem. Um, it gets the villagers to use the road. But Hoppe says that that road owner um, still gets to control who comes in and out of the village. In other words, he can restrict access to foreigners, but not the villagers themselves. Um, he's still setting the rules, still controlling commercial activity. Um, Hoppe says that he wouldn't be able to charge the villagers to use the road. Um, he's now requiring payments by foreigners only, I guess people from outside of the economy. Still doesn't allow joining ownership. And he is now restricting foreigners' access to, um, to the private property. So instead of the problem of circlement, now we have the problem of country border control for the private property owners. So that's what this looks like. The idea, I don't know how long you can see up here, but the idea is that that road becomes a combination of tier one private space um, with regards to everybody outside of the village and tier three protected public space for um, the villagers. So the villagers, they're right away, they're protected, but everybody else, for everybody else, it's essentially like a gated community where nobody from outside and coming without an invitation. Um, so for me, that's not a real great application of public space. Um, and there's a problem with Papa using this um, this easement argument. He just got done telling us all how the only way to, um, to legitimately own private property is to homestead it uh, for the first appropriator. Um, but the problem is the guy who's coming and fixing the pothole in the road is not the first user of this land. He, he ran into a conflict already with the previous users. So by, by Hoppe admitting that he needs an easement here, he's admitting that, that it hasn't truly been homestead. It hasn't completely been homestead. He's also admitting that it's not just kind of locking and mixing your labor with the land that creates property rights. Um, just use alone of this space has created some property rights for the villages who are accessing, at least creates the rights of access, uh, which are being protected by the easement. He also admits that, with this easement, that property rights can be granted to some unorganized electors, not just one person coming in and claiming ownership of the road. You're essentially defining this public, public right of access to the space. And he's also showing that it's not so much that you have one person coming in and homesteading the space, and then he has exclusive control, and he's, he's really the owner and kind of the sovereign ruler, of this property. Uh, property rights are divisible and can be allocated among different groups of people. So what this gets us to is what I'm calling modes of property ownership. So we need to think of property ownership as not just this, this simple way of uh, one person or one group owning this property and they just set all the rules to say what happens. I'll borrow some terms here from there's a theory in project management called Sinekin. May for force simple, complicated, complex, and chaotic problems as you use to find and define these words to uh, concepts of ownership. So first of all, there's there's a state of disorder, which is unowned land. State of simple ownership, which is property rights allocated to one defined individual, which you typically think of as property rights. There's complicated ownership, which is property rights allocated among multiple different individuals or groups. So this is essentially what Hoppe was saying with easements. That you have this one group called the villagers, and they have this easement. And you have this other guy called the owner, and he has certain rights associated with that property. And so there are lots of, of various organizations in society that use some form of complicated ownership. Um, something like, you know, like a stock ownership company or things like that, or co-op. 
And then I'm saying that there can also be a, a category called complex ownership. And the idea here is that you don't only have to find parties who are owners of property rights property, but there are also undefined individuals or groups, for example, just generally saying the public. So you could have rights that are allocated to people who are not necessarily represented by anyone in personal organization. I think it's a distinct way to think about, about ownership that you're, you're reserving rights for certain groups of people who might not be able to. Uh, and then finally, there's chaotic ownership. This is where you have an unpredictable allocation of property rights among various people. So this is what we often get into with government, is you have things like, like planning boards, you have nationalization, you have eminent domain, where on any given property, you don't actually know what your property rights are, because if you want to, let's say you want to build something, you don't know what you're going to be able to build until you go to a planning board and, and get their approvals. Here's, I guess, what I would propose, then, for how we should um, think about Going back to the example of the village, what should happen with that road? So this is this, uh, this scenario that none of us really like, I don't think, of simple homestead of private property where the owner, um, somebody claims a right to the road and then he can exclude whoever he wants from that road. That doesn't really work. Uh, the second, as Hoppe says as well, you can give an easement to the villagers and at least the people in that village have access to that. But I think that that doesn't recognize the fact that this, this roadway, this pathway has been used not necessarily by, by any group of people in particular, but truly by the public. It has, it's been a public right-of-way, a public access way, um, even before the villagers, in this case, moved into town. So I would argue that the entire road needs to be protected, that there should be a, a public easement uh, protecting that space so that this is truly a public road connecting the outside through the village um, to the beach. And then the question is, well, how do we do that? How do we actually create that public space, especially as we think about divesting what are now government roads and other uh, public space? So now, before I get into divestiture, unfortunately, we need to talk about helicopters. So what this is, is there's this, for those of you who don't waste your life on, on Twitter and Reddit, there's this meme going around about Anselm Hoppe, based on this quote of his about physical removal. And the idea is that people say that Hoppe wants to throw communists out of helicopters. Um, he says it. He'll say here that Democrats and communists um, should be physically separated and removed from society. So I'm going to read this quote here, and then I'm going to get the context for it, because I think the meme itself is pretty, pretty misunderstood. Um, there's a quote here from Papa's book, Democracy the God That Failed, where he says, no, There's no such thing as a right to free, unlimited speech exists, not even to unlimited speech on one's own tenant property. No one is permitted to advocate ideas contrary to the very covenant is already protecting private property such as democracy and communism. There could be no tolerance towards democrats and communists in a libertarian social order. They will have to be physically separated and removed from society. So that's a pretty pretty damning statement for um, I think for, for libertarians it doesn't at least for me and not all of you, but for me that doesn't really jive with my perception of a libertarian society. But Hoppe has an important qualification here. He starts that whole statement by saying, in a covenant concluded among proprietor and community tenants for the purpose of protecting their private property, blah, 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 they're doing tolerance. So what he's saying here is that if there's a society in which people have agreed together and have a, a, a written covenant that they've agreed to, um, that says that they're going to exclude Democrats and, and communists, then he says that, that's, that they could do that within a little kind of society. So that's, it's really kind of an unremarkable statement. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, more generally, 
this idea of covenant communities is something that I think Papa sees as something that's important in ultimately an anarcho-capitalist society, or more generally a, a, any kind of general libertarian society without the U.S. government. Um, he says, in an anarcho-capitalist society, all land is privately owned, including all streets, rivers, airports, harbors, etc. And as is currently the case in some housing developments, the owner may be bound by contractual limitations on what he can do with his property, which is voluntary zone. So this is that idea that within a neighborhood, you could have certain restrictions on the property, um, like these covenants, even a covenant to restrict people's speech. He said, clearly under the scenario, there exists no such thing as freedom of immigration. Rather, there exists the freedom of many independent private property owners to admit or exclude others from their own property in accordance with their own unrestricted or restricted property rights. So what he's really talking about here is this, this village example. This is that was a separate article, but, but I, I interpret this as really being this idea that you have, that in a libertarian society, he thinks you're going to have all these villages that have these covenants and agreements among themselves um, to control the public space within their neighborhoods, and even to the extent, to the extent, second quote, that you're controlling what people can and can't do on, on their own property. And of course, this happens nowadays. We have gay communities, and all there are lots of covenant communities out there. Usually, the covenants are more on what people can build or can't build on their property, or if you can leave a boat or car blocking in the front yard or put up garden gnomes or hang your laundry, that kind of stuff. And so, it's usually not about people's speech and, and behavior on their property. It's more about the physical, the physical environment. But again, in a libertarian world, um, yeah, you can allow this kind of agreement if that's what people want to. So, Here's what I think a lot of people get with this, this silly helicopter. This is what people get wrong with Papa. When he's talking about physical removal, he's talking about, all he's talking about eviction from private property by the owner. That's it. It's not, he's, not talking, he's not saying that all communists need to be removed from society by means of help. He's saying that, that um, a private property owner has the right to remove people from their space, which is essentially eviction, which is a pretty innocuous statement. That's really, I guess, just a definition of of private property. And in the example he gave, that the restrictions on speech, which a lot of people think are, are not very libertarian, he says in this example, they've been consented to within the covenant community and they don't apply outside of that community. So that's in defense of Hoppe. And here's what I think Hoppe gets right in this situation. Yes, in a covenant community, the property owners can voluntarily agree to mutually restrict their freedoms. Including, uh, including speech about communism and libertarian subjects. And if there were people who violated that covenant, yeah, they could potentially be evicted from the community if that's something that the covenant put into place if it gave the other property owners the right to evict somebody who started talking about the covenant. This is not technically aggression. The violator would have consented to that removal when he signed up for this, this covenant. But now we need to talk about what Hoppe gets wrong in this situation. So if I go back to this example of this village, Hoppe sees this as, I think, something that's a, that's a feature of a libertarian society, that you have all these, these little villages, these covenant communities, that would each be controlling what people are doing within that community based on their preferences for things like, like you know, property ownership, or things like, you mentioned, like religion, or it could be, you know, a nudist colony where they want people wearing clothes. And so there are... He sees in a, in a libertarian society, lots of these various different types of communities developed um, to allow people to pursue their own interests within these environments. 
But when you talk to the private property society, restricting people's speech of communism, let me ask you a question. We're, we're, here we are in a tent full of libertarians. How many people in a libertarian society would want to live in a, in a covenant community that, that would be able to kick them out of their property for talking about democracy or communism or anything else like that? So, <laughs> can we take this on that? So, I mean, I, I don't think, to me, that this is a model of, of a libertarian society. Yes, this type of community technically would be permitted in, in a libertarian society, it's not the sovereign, but um, I don't think, see that as something that would be desired or widespread um, within a libertarian society. So here's what Hoppe, I think, gets wrong about this whole idea of, of these covenant communities as a model for a libertarian society. First of all, the, the restrictions only apply to the property owners who have signed up for those covenants in those communities. If a visitor comes in, they haven't signed up to be kicked out for talking about whatever they want to talk about. As I, as you just said, I don't think that these that libertarians would choose to restrict speech or movement or any of these other freedoms I talked about in the beginning, um, even if such covenants were possible, which generally I don't think they would be, that you could really um, have these communities restricting everybody's actions within that community on a voluntary basis. As I said, these kind of collectivized covenant communities are not a libertarian social order. They could exist in a libertarian social order, but they are not themselves a model of what we would expect to see on a widespread basis. In fact, they are themselves a communist type of arrangement because you're you're sharing um, some degree of, of property rights and property rights enforcement among all of your neighbors by, by saying that your neighbors can control what you do on your property. This is a this is a property we see in communist communities. I think Bob is wrong that, that speaking about, about communism in this type of, type of community would be against the principles of the community itself because such community would itself be communist. And the next point, how would these covenant communities make decisions? Typically, they make decisions through democracy. So there's two points of, of democracy and communism that they want to exclude people from the community on. That's how these things operate. That's what they are. So this whole example, I think, is kind of a... a a red herring, it's really, it's not a good example of, of his argument of, of how people could be expelled based on speech, and it's not a good model for a libertarian social order. What I would argue is that private ownership of public space does not necessarily grant the owner the right to admit or exclude other people. Um, as I said, we should have easements protecting the rights of public access. And in a libertarian society, there should be a network of protected public spaces from which you cannot be physically removed. So the idea here is that in the image I gave, between all the little red houses, you have yellow roads, yellow brick roads going everywhere that's connecting all the space. And that should all be protected public space uh, where people can enjoy all the freedoms that we tend to think we do have within a free society. I'm going to go through the next two bits kind of quickly here so we can have some time for questions. We have over two minutes left. I want to talk about divesting government property. Um, first of all, I intentionally use the word that divesting as opposed to privatization because when we're talking about privatizing public space, it gets confusing between privatizing the ownership and privatizing the access. So I prefer the word divesting or divestiture to say the word. We're changing the ownership, but we're not necessarily making that space private. So why would we want to divest government property? Government property forms a, a big part of the state's power and perceived legitimacy. Obviously, you know, the, one of the biggest questions in libertarianism is, is who will build the roads. This is something that people just can't 
the competitive how we how we have a society with roads and public spaces without a government. And so, in order to reduce government's power and their legitimacy, we need to take some of that and find ways to get property out of the hands of government. Private land ownership, as I said before, maximizes freedom for the landowner and minimizes conflict among um, permitted users. So, private ownership tends to be a better way of negotiating how people are using public space. Protected public space, as it mentioned with these can maximize freedom for the public and minimize conflict through negotiated easements and rules. Divesting government property gives less justification for eminent domain. Of course, now that we have eminent domain where everyone wants to build or expand the road, and I think that would be less justified um, in society with private ownership. If all government property is owned by private property owners, there becomes less justification for municipal police um, because security among all public space can be provided by, or should be provided by the property owners. Um, so municipal police can become essentially a separate service rather than the, the enforcers of all public space that people use on a daily basis. And if it's done right, um, divesting government property, you know, there's all this property out there that has value that's now owned by the government um, that nobody's getting value of. So if you take that and privatize it in a way that, that can benefit um, the public in terms of public ownership, um, this could be a windfall capital endowment where all of a sudden people who don't have you know, any, any capital ownership now could become owners of property um, in some way. So how do we how do we do this? How do we take up property out of the hands of government and who does it go to? Well, first of all, some people say, well, you could just take the land that's there and it could be homestead. So whoever you know, the government says, okay, we're, we're done with this park, you know, somebody could then go in and homestead. That doesn't necessarily work all the time. There are some situations in which you can, can homestead land. I have a little chart up here. Um, I won't go through this whole thing. But essentially, we have to look at whether the land um, is, un, is owned or is unowned, whether there are improvements on that land, whether the land was at one time privately owned, has it been abandoned, um, does the private owner have an illegitimate claim. And ultimately, I say that, that if the government owns land, if it's unimproved land, something like a national park, um, that hasn't been that hasn't been built on. Um, I would argue that yeah, that land could could revert to essentially a state of nature and be available for for homesteading by becoming development. However, land that has been improved, so land where they say they built a road or they built a park or some other public space, um, I don't think that's available for homesteading um, because those, those improvements um, have already been made. It's not, it would just be a land grab. If that became available, you just go out and fix a pothole and claim ownership of the highway. Uh, it doesn't work. So, there are various other methods that, that people have discussed for divesting government property to private ownership. Uh, what Hoppe says in his article is it should go to the taxpayers. They've been paying money for all the roads all these years, therefore, they are the ones who have really homesteaded it, despite the governments um, being the, the people who have built it up. I don't see this being workable. Um, for one reason, how would you figure out what share goes to which taxpayer and how much and how far back you go with hands? The math that just seems unworkable to me. But beyond that, of course, who are the biggest? The biggest taxpayers are essentially the wealthy in any given society because most most governments are set up where they're they're facing the rich more so than anybody else. So this would mean that if you're, if you're investing all this government property, all that government property is going to end up in the hands of essentially the wealthy. 
if you're giving back to the taxpayers in proportion to how much tax they pay. So um, I don't see that really being feasible in any society. I don't think very many people would be accepting of that. There's another argument that the property could go to, um, to the workers, the people who built the roads. That doesn't really make sense. Of course, they were paid for their services. They, they haven't claimed any ownership of it. I don't really see that being very meaningful. Um, it could go to users, people who have to use the road. Um, but the question is, who are the users? How do you figure that out? I'm going to come back to that in a little bit with my solution. Um, it could go to the abutters. You know, if, if you're in that village I described and there's, there's eight houses on a, on a street, um, you could just say, well, these abutters each get a share of, of this portion of the road. That gets challenging with saying, um, who gets what? How far do the tennis go? You know, how do you draw those lines? Um, and again, there's still a lot of people who have taxpayers and other people who have contributed to those roads um, that aren't getting an opportunity for ownership there. Just because they don't have to live on a particular road. You could take the road and divide it up among all the citizens within the town. You know, that, that's possible, but um, there might be people who don't want to become road owners. Um, that's somewhat problematic. If you go to creditors, if there are people who have enough money to build roads, you know, maybe they have money to do it. That's kind of a shoddy argument, you know. If if, if somebody, if a, a lender lends money to a criminal and you put the criminal in jail, well, the, the lender doesn't get to get his money back. He took a risk on, on a bad situation and he lost it. The same should be true of people who money the government. You have what I'm calling here the victims of history. This is essentially arguments for restitution. People who have been um, been wronged in some way through property ownership, through colonialism, through slavery, through in the war, through all of these terrible things the government has done over the years, you could say we have all these victim classes that should somehow be received restitution. There are certainly arguments to be made there, but I don't think that that really has anything to do with land titles and land ownership and transferring government property. There are other ways to, to give people restitution other than um, messing around with, with the land ownership of property. It could simply go to the highest bidder. Um, this is a problem where, again, I, I think there's most people at least have some sense that, or some belief that there is public ownership of government property in some way. And so I think just taking that and, and handing it off to, to the highest bidder, I don't think very many people would be accepting us. And then the question is, the highest bidder pays money to the government, what happens to that? You're still back in the same problem where now you have to figure out how that money and it's distributed fairly among whoever. There could be a lottery system, of course. Lotteries are, this is, you know, what government does with, with housing and with things like green cards. This is the best idea government has come up with for solving scarcity. It's just to pick a name out of hat. Um, I don't see that being a very meaningful way and useful way to transfer property. You could have a voucher system. This is more or less what was done in, in I guess, in Eastern European countries. Um, so the Union at the end of Congress and there where they gave out vouchers to all of the, the citizens, I guess. And then those people would use those vouchers to buy certain shares of all of the various um, institutions and things that were now being privately owned. Um, there were a lot of problems with that. Of course, a lot of corruption and stuff. People didn't trust the system, so they just sold all their vouchers, and they ended up consolidating ownership among the wealthy of all who more or less already owned the stuff to begin with. And then, of course, there's siege and revolution. You, know, you could have um, some libertarian army go down to City Hall and claim ownership of, of all the roads. That's no better than a government claiming ownership of the roads. I don't see that being a good decision. 
um, go through this year. Um, but you know, you, you could come up with various evaluation criteria and put all these all these different methods side by side and see which ones work and which ones don't. Things like preserving prop, which ones preserve property rights the best, which um, give the, the best perception of fairness, whatever that means, which allow for forms of voluntary ownership. And which are reasonable transfer mechanisms, something that could actually happen um, in the real world. Um, so again, I won't, I won't go through all that, but I don't think there's any one solution there that's, that's really a silver bullet. Um, what I'm proposing is this idea of opt-in trust. I have a bunch of slides here, but we have five minutes left, so I'm going to go through this quickly and make questions. Um, the idea here is that this is a form of non-governmental public ownership. It's essentially like a co-op. The idea is that anybody could establish an ownership share. Um, the key here is that it's at no cost. So essentially, someone creates a trust state, which is essentially a piece of paper that says, I'm going to form this organization. Um, anybody could, could sign up for that, um, or they could leave it anytime they wanted to. They can make decisions about how that's run. And then, in terms of how the government property would then be divested to it, Essentially, well, first of all, we here at Animal Protection Podcast we convince government to divest their property. So, don't worry about that. We'll take care of that. Once they've decided that they're gonna, they want to divest the road or a park or something, they could pick an opt-in trust, or pick an organization that they want to um, give that property to. Um, that property would take over. Uh, that that trust would take over as the owner of that property, and then that they would be governed by their own document um, in terms of how they manage that property who has access rights, who doesn't. You could also establish independent easements, essentially, to preserve uh, public access rights, as I mentioned originally. And then they could have various sources of revenue, just like just like any business. You think of any kind of private road, you have owner fees, the owners of the road to pay for it, um, user fees, butter impact fees, for things like purpose and utility work, um, land leases for, for different uses on the property, advertising donations, there could be various ways of raising capital, zone of fees, investment shares. You could maybe have a separate class of shares where, where investors would own uh, the improvements to the property, but not the property itself. So if there are profits that are coming out of the, uh, the ownership of the road or the park or whatever, then a portion of those shares could be paid to investors as dividends, and a portion could go to the, uh, the owners of the trust. Of course, they would have certain maintenance costs, like wear and tear, security, insurance. Um, and they could have opportunities for profits, and there could be various ways that those get um, distributed among the owners, um, reinvested, um, or given as discounts or savings for the users of that, of that space. Inclusion, as I said, originally public space is where freedom happens. You should think about four tiers of public space. Um, private space, uh, where nobody has, or it's invitation only. Uh, permissive space, where the owner Generally allows people to come in, but may decide to um, to kick people out if you need to for various reasons. Protected public space, where there is an easement or right of way for to be public access, where the owner can't necessarily kick people out of the space. Um, an unknown space, which is state of nature. Um, there can be various modes of ownership: disorder, simple ownership, complicated ownership between multiple parties, complex ownership between multiple parties, including parties who are undefined. Um, and chaotic ownership, which is unpredictable. A libertarian society should have a network of protected public spaces connecting sovereign private properties. So um, this idea that a libertarian society is going to be 
just private space everywhere, and, and every private owner gets to control where everybody goes um, by invitation only. I don't think that's realistic, and I don't think it's really useful for the return society. I think we need a network of public spaces connecting um, sovereign private properties. And in terms of divesting government property, government property should be, be divested to public forms of ownership with protections for established freedoms. And my idea of often trust, I say, may be the best method of the best way. That's it. Thank you all. Um, I think we have time. Let me see. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe one question. Uh, since I brought up uh, divesting public land to people, and the main objection I usually get, and I tend to be very optimistic about how the market would, would favor this, but the main objection I get is what's to prevent a significant amount of public lands uh, eventually being owned by companies that then develop or mine them and kind of ruin them. Right. That would otherwise be beautiful public Yeah, that's where um, two things I guess. My, my thought would be, would be with the trust, the opt-in trust, is that in their creation, in their, their document that establishes them, they would have things that say, you know, we are this trust, um, as, as the trust, if you own this property, we will protect, you know, the, the natural, the natural space. If that's, if that's what the priority for that space, then they might. And approve it in the final document, and then it would be really hard for them to have overturned that. Um, maybe there would be some mechanism for the owners, um, members of that trust, to do that. But, um, but that should be a pretty high bar for them to um, to take that away if that's what if that space has been essentially homestead at this point. The idea here is that, that gov even government space, government property, has been homestead, it's been developed, um, even, even preserved land. Um, you know, obviously nobody's built stuff on it, but um, it's been declared as preserved land, and I think that that, should, that can be respected as a form of homesteading. And so anybody taking over that property would either have to themselves become the protector of that, or establish an easement that would say that, uh, or some other kind of covenant that would say that, you know, nobody can, can develop this land, or nobody can destroy its natural character, or however you want to say that. Would the government have to initiate that? Well, in any of these cases, it's government. It's, it, government's going to be handing. If this is ever going to happen, government's going to be the one handing it off. And I think that that needs to happen voluntarily on the government's part. So it's fantastic. I'm guessing that that's a good idea. I think that's possible for maybe, maybe certain small parcels. You know, I mean, it probably does happen, but it might be a small parcel in any city that the government turns over to some, some public land trust. Um, you just think about that happening. I think it does have to happen on a piecemeal basis, so it's not like one day, you know, some cities and hand over all the roads to somebody, but um, I think that we can start to you can start to set the precedent with smaller parcels and then um, eventually hopefully that sense for us um demonstrates that it's a better way to own Sounds like a good idea. Have the opt-in trust been tried before, and what's the experience with it? Um, I mean, the closest—I guess the closest thing I can think of is something like a co-op, where because there are various kinds of co-ops out there. Even something like a grocery store, where you know, people get together and they become owners of the. Even if the ski mountain, sometimes will do this, where you can be a co-op owner of, of an entire ski mountain, um, come in and usually pay into it as an owner. So there are things like that, and then there's a form of ownership. And then in terms of other trusts, I mean, land, there are lots of, of land trusts out there. 
Um, the best example I can think of is, is in England, they have an organization called the National Trust. And they own a ton of property there, all these old mansions and, and things, these, these old grand estates like Downton Abbey, those kind of places. Um, they actually own, I think about 20% of the um, British coastline is owned by this organization, private organization called the National Trust. Um, so there are some interesting examples out there of, of trusts, private trusts that own land. The last one. Okay. Um, if a protected pro a public property, if the owner of a, of a protected public property can't exclude people from it, then how do they uh, collect user fees? Like, if someone doesn't pay, you can't kick them off. So you have no teeth to actually collect revenue. And so what's your incentive to improve or, like, maintain the property? Well, so when I say they can't kick people off, I think that user fees can be justified for essentially wear and tear. So if, if um, and, and my idea is that this, this would all be defined within this initial trust that's established, that they would define what the access rights are and what the, you know, how the user fees are established. Um, but essentially there's an argument that, that you know, vehicles traveling over the road are going to be causing wear and tear and overload. So they have some responsibility to um, pay for, for the maintenance of that, that improvement. Um, however, if, Maybe if you're a pedestrian coming through the space, you're not really causing any wear care, um, you're not really causing a problem. So maybe they don't have, don't have to pay anything. There could be other situations where pedestrians, you know, if it's one place that's really crowded, they have occupancy limits or things like that, then maybe there is an argument for user fees. But I think all those things would need to be negotiated as these properties, individual properties, um, are divested. There's going to be a negotiation process of of which of these freedoms are protected and how, and what are the some of the restrictions on those, like you know, reasonable restrictions like user fees, like hours of use, certain specific uses of spaces, things like that. Okay, uh, thank you everybody. Um, again, my name is Tim Barshu. Um, I'm going to be at Site 41 in the Agora Village. If you don't want to come by and say hi, I can show you this in my work and uh, talk about our podcast. And that be good. Thank you all. So that was my speech from Porkfest 15, Public Space, the Missing Link Between Freedom and Property. So Joe, you've had a chance to listen to the speech. How do you think it went? Yeah, I thought it was great. I just want to say a few things about the sound quality. I mean, first of all, so you said it's in what, Lancaster, New Hampshire? Yeah, way up in the White Mountains, north of uh, Mount Washington. I had the impression that it might have been in Lebanon, New Hampshire, because you know, at some points it sounded like you were in downtown Beirut during a shelling from the Israeli <laughs> army or something. There's <laughs> car alarms going off and dogs barking and people singing happy birthday to Edward Snowden. <laughs> sounded like heavy vehicles driving by. Sounded like there were spitfires flying around, you know, <laughs> like they were filming Dunkirk 2 back to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> the helicopters were a bit disconcerting given the subject matter of my speech. <laughs> I, I figured they were just giving free helicopter rides to communists. <laughs> <laughs> well, the really uh, freaky thing was that about half hour after after my speech, I went back to my booth and uh, ended up meeting a guy who was a helicopter pilot and <laughs> offered me a ride. <laughs> Did you like your speech? <laughs> I don't know. He, he was very friendly, but uh, I don't know if I really want to take him up on that. <laughs> <laughs> Those libertarians and their helicopters. So you talked about the helicopter memes in your speech, which I think most libertarians understand that that's just completely ridiculous. 
But I think you might have even taken it a bit more seriously than it deserves to be taken. <laughs> actually analyzing it. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the, the point was that it was a way to explain this public space concept and what that means for this kind of framework that, you know, that, that Hoppe spells out. But it's not just Hoppe. I mean, I think Rothbard and maybe guys like Walter Block have ways that they that they envision a libertarian society developing, which has to do with things like covenant communities and homeowners associations and that this would be kind of the micro unit that would govern society. Yeah. And as you know, as I said in the speech, I think that that could play a, a part, probably a small part in a libertarian society as it does now. You know, you can go to places now that have maybe not the types of covenants that that Hoppe was envisioning <laughs> to control people's speech and things, but there are certainly plenty of of covenant communities out there mostly have, having to do with the way people build things more so than the way they're acting. So I thought that example, I mean, for one thing, it's, you know, it's a little red meat for the, uh, <laughs> for the crowd. <laughs> for the LOL libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There were a couple of, of sacred cows of anarcho-capitalist orthodoxy that I was trying to lead to the slaughter here. <laughs> and one of them was this idea that when you have private ownership of private property, that ultimately, if that were taken to its logical conclusion, then you would have every property owner deciding who does or does not come to get to come on their property by invitation only. This is really the basis. You know, Hoppe, one of the things that Hoppe is best known for is his stance on immigration and immigration controls. And he's probably one of the strongest libertarian proponents of essentially border controls because he argues that in this type of libertarian society of of invitation-only spaces, that's what would result. That's what would emerge. So he says that, well, while we have a government, you know, that's what they should act like. They should act like they're a trust of some sort that's, you know— acting in the way that individual property owners would want to act in a libertarian society. And then he, so he spins his whole theory of immigration control based on that. But my arguments for protected public space really blow that out of the water. It's really kind of meaningless. It's not, not totally meaningless. Obviously, private property owners would still have invitation-only access to their own private property. But where we have this framework that's developed under governments of all these existing roads and existing parks and existing public spaces, I think it would be hard to argue that when those are divested to private ownership, there's not some public use that has been homesteaded according to libertarian principles. You know, this, this is the established use of these spaces. You're just changing the owner. Yeah, I think the case that you presented here, you've really introduced a lot more nuance into this topic. Um, I mean, like we've discussed before, there hasn't really been a lot of discussion about public space within libertarian theory. And for the most part, people take the, the concept of private space, you know, private ownership, and just sort of project it onto this other category of public space and try to kind of shoehorn that into the, to the model of private ownership. I think that what you've done here is really introduce it as a separate category that does have separate properties and has to be managed in a different way. Right. But, but it's still, you know, I would argue it's still very consistent with traditional libertarian property rights. It's just breaking that down a bit and, and recognizing specific rights to pieces of property rather than this all-encompassing ownership by one owner. Again, that's appropriate for some spaces, but for many spaces, there's public use that has been established. Yeah, I think it makes it easier to kind of build a theory if you just define unique individual property owners to every space. You know, that, that kind of makes our job easier as libertarian theorists to kind of bundle everything into certain boxes. And, and then you can just say, okay, well, here's the owner of this box, here's the owner of that box, and then the rights are distributed accordingly based on those ownership rights. But as I think you've made a pretty strong case, 
it's just too simplistic of an analysis for the, the complexities of real-world public spaces. And I'm not presenting this as a sort of pragmatic argument, like, oh, you know, it, it would be easier in practice to implement this. I think it's actually a stronger theoretical argument from the ANCAP libertarian framework, whereby recognizing public spaces as a separate category, you're able to, to analyze them appropriately and apply the proper level of complexity to that analysis. Yeah, and, and even to speak to the point about pragmatism, there's an interesting argument out there. There's a, a book called Governing the Commons by Eleanor Ostrom, who was the 2009 uh, winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, which, as we said before, isn't really a Nobel Prize. <laughs> the point of her book was challenging the concept of the tragedy of the commons, which was, I believe it was a 1961 essay by a guy named Garrett Hardin, which is this idea that, that when you have common space, shared space between people where you're not allocating and parceling out space, that the resources there are going to be depleted. So if it's a, if it's a, a cow pasture and everybody's just allowed to graze their cows on the land, they're just going to go out and have their cows eat as much grass as they can and not worry about maintaining that property over the long term. And there's certainly a lot of truth in that argument. But what Eleanor Ostrom points out in her work is she actually goes and studies a lot of places where there are examples of what I've called in my speech, complex means of ownership, where you have many different ways of allocating property rights among a larger group of people. So she's coming at this from more of an anthropological angle, going out and studying some places where they've found ways to solve problems by assigning various types of property rights that are not just exclusive use, you know, parceled out, territorialized land. There are many different ways of demarcating and enforcing property rights within what she calls polycentric governance, which is kind of multiple levels of enforcement from the individual to the neighbors to, you know, usually there's some, some government involvement too, although she's, while not a libertarian, I think she's pretty distrustful of government. Isn't she more of a, what you might call like a left libertarian, like kind of that way inclined? <laughs> yeah. She definitely comes across as more, more left-leaning. But that said, I don't think that what her proposals are necessarily socialistic. Yeah. You know, where it's, it's about, well, we just have to all come together and make all this stuff common property and then come up with a system for dividing it. it it's much more nuanced and interesting the, the, the kind of solutions that she observes people making uh, to assign property rights. Yeah. And you talked in your speech a lot about the idea of separable rights to a space. So for example, you might have the right to pass through a, let's say a road, you might have public access to travel along that road, but you wouldn't have the right to let's say, build a house on it. <laughs> right. I think this is a pretty important concept that a lot of libertarians kind of miss. And I'm not even really accusing Hoppe. I think Hoppe does have a more nuanced understanding of this. But the sort of simplistic view of libertarianism is, okay, well, well you define a piece of property, that's your private property, and then you have almost unlimited rights on that property. It's essentially you do whatever you want on that property, as long as you don't violate the non-aggression principle. But as you said, in these public spaces, this gets a lot more complicated, and you really can't just work it back to a simple kind of homesteading argument because it's just there's just no actual history there to back that up. And you spelled out some of these problems in your speech. I think one way you could look at how this scenario could be avoided is that you've got this certain use that's been defined for a space. Let's say it's a thoroughfare, if it's a road or something like that. If someone else comes in and builds something on that space that interferes with that existing use, then effectively they're committing aggression against that existing use. This is where separating these uses helps to define what can and can't be done in these spaces a bit more clearly. 
So rather than having this whole bundle of, of uses that one person gets, you have these established uses. And rather than saying, oh, this can't be done on this property, you say nothing can be done that conflicts with this homesteaded use. And I think that's a better generalization of property rights and how they should be addressed. Yeah, I think the idea of homesteading should really be thought about as homesteading specific uses or activity on certain areas of property, rather than, you know, as I said, fixing a pothole gets you the whole highway. <laughs> yeah, There needs to be some proportionality between the labor, you know, the, the effort that's been put in to establish homesteading and the rights that are granted, um, especially if those rights include rights like eviction. Right. Um, that's obviously probably the most fundamental right when it comes to private property ownership. But again, for some spaces, that's not appropriate. One thing I want to be clear about that I wasn't really clear about in the speech is that, you know, moving forward, if if somehow we found ourselves in Libertopia and there was a much stronger recognition of, of private property, future developments could certainly have private roads and private and public spaces, you know, something like a gated community. Of course, we have these things now, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly consistent with libertarianism and with all of the things I was talking about in my speech. The issue we have right now is that we have so many spaces, so many public spaces that have not been created as private spaces. You know, they've been homesteaded for public use, essentially. And so that that has been established. So I guess my argument for the most part applies to what is now government space. There may be some private spaces where you could make an argument that there's have been established public use rights. Yeah, so that would be like a condo development or something like that, where, where all the roads within that development are privately owned and it's a, a gated community. So, so that whole place was built for specifically private access for the residents who live there and obviously for whoever they invite into their place. So you're not saying that the roads within a gated community would somehow have to be converted to public access. Right. Because essentially that, that use, that use of that space hasn't been homesteaded. Exactly. Yeah, this is why I was really challenging this concept of covenant communities as being kind of a dominant feature of a libertarian society. You know, as I asked the audience, it's like, I just don't think a lot of people really want to live that way. You know, there are certainly some people. Yeah. I mean, you know, half the state of Florida is these gated communities, <laughs> and that's okay if, if, you, if you play golf. Yeah, but, but even then, it's like you said, you know, it's, it's not like these gated communities have covenants about, you know, re restricting speech about you know, political speech. I mean, they might have they they might have restrictions about putting political signs up on your lawn or something like that, but yeah. they're not gonna they're not gonna give you a helicopter ride just for something that you say in the privacy of your own home or even within the public spaces within that community. Yeah, so I mean, you know, again, of course, those spaces can exist and will exist, but I think a lot of anarcho capitalists tend to see these covenant communities as as really like the way and, and a good way for society to govern itself. In the absence of a government, you know, in the absence of a monopoly tax authority in, in one given area. And I don't really see that being the case. I mean, I don't yeah. I don't see that being really, a, first of all, a really great way for society to organize itself anyways. Yeah. And I don't see it as being something that would ultimately promote freedom, the kind of freedoms I was talking about, and, and promote a, a broader, freer society. Again, it can happen, but I think that's not the way that we're going to resolve conflicts in a libertarian society. Yeah, I mean, and as you said in your speech, it's actually it's actually more of a communist kind of setup. Exactly. Wherever one of the, wherever one of the communities is subject to this, you know, whether or not it's contractual or not, in practice, you know, what's the difference between some, some community that's policing speech 
and you know, in an actual communist community that, that does the same thing. Right. I mean, of course, the argument is that well, you can always leave, but that's that's you know, it's it's a love it or leave it argument, which is no better than than what we have now. Well, yeah. I mean, it would be okay if if these are you know isolated pockets, and then you do have other options, you know, other neighborhoods you can move to that don't have these restrictions. Right. So so this sort of you know Hoppian and Kapistan vision of an entire world that's just a patchwork of these gated communities that all have these kind of covenant agreements restricting speech is, as you said, completely unrealistic. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. And like you said, it's not because you know there's communists that won't want to live like that. It's because there's libertarians that don't want to live like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Even if we have a 100% ideological victory and, and everyone becomes a libertarian uh, and everyone subscribes to the, the non-aggression principle and the ideas of anarcho-capitalism and all that stuff, it, this still isn't going to happen. Like you're not going to have people that want to live in these sorts of communities, right? So that's why we need to come up with a way of describing how we all get along in a society that has more public space and public interaction, um, as I've described. You know, so my argument is a counter to that kind of picture, as you said, of this patchwork of gated communities. My argument is that we should have this strong private property, but it should be parcel by parcel, you know, just more, more or less like we have now. I said sovereign private property, but then having a network of protected public space that connects all these parts and pieces so that everybody from their own private property has free access to other people's property, or not, I'm sorry, not to other people's property, but to get to other people's property if, if they're invited there by way of um, public access roadways and, and other types of public spaces. Yeah. And the challenge then becomes, how do we resolve conflict within these public spaces? And that's where this idea of, of opt-in trusts or you know, some other kind of ownership organization, together with easements protecting and defining access rights and public use rights, I think that that will start to get us closer to a way of negotiating conflicts within these public spaces and establishing rules and establishing norms of behavior. Yeah, and we discussed opt-in trusts in episode 14 uh, following your previous speech. I would like to raise a few more points about them here because obviously you spent a bit more time thinking through this concept and we'll post in the show notes some of the visuals that you had in your presentation where you've got some tables comparing some different modes of ownership and uh, different methods of divestiture, which I think are, are worthwhile to kind of understand some of the consequences of these different choices. One thing that I was thinking about with the opt-in trusts is there's two sort of paths of objection that I could see to these. One would be from the kind of ANCAP side where they say, oh, well, that's, that's really going to just devolve into some sort of tragedy of the commons, where this trust isn't really in a position to profit so, you know, some of them are just going to be neglected and, and go to rot. Now, I think that's a valid concern, but I think there's actually a bit of a, a market process that could evolve there, where there's some public spaces that will be maintained and that will be heavily used and that will be profitable for the trusts themselves and for the owners of the trust. And then there, there might be others that aren't, you know, that if there's some road that just doesn't get used that much. Well, it could be that maybe the best thing for that road is for it to, to go away, to be converted to some other use. So I think it would introduce sort of a market signal as to which public spaces are worth preserving and which ones are worth divesting to private use. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think that's that's certainly a possibility. It's a possibility with any type of ownership arrangement that isn't, you know, funded by money taken from people by force. That when you have property that is economically underperforming, um, that there just isn't the demand there. That it's going to be difficult to keep up with the costs of maintaining it. But a couple of things could happen there. One is, as you said, it could just be converted to some other use. You know, maybe it gets unpaved, or maybe it they stop allowing cars on it, and it just becomes a pedestrian and bike path or <laughs> something. Yeah, or, or maybe someone builds houses on it. Right, or maybe it becomes property that, I mean, if we're talking about a road or something, you're probably not going to. I mean, the reality is, if you talk about a road network, it's probably going to be maintained as a network in most places. Right. You know, if there's an existing network of roads that feed into each other, when that gets divested from government to whoever the new owner is, they're probably going to do it as a network. And maybe there's there are arguments where they break off parts and pieces at one time or another. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be the case there. Like, you know, this is what happens a lot like in hospitals is you go to pay for an MRI. The cost you're paying isn't just the cost of the MRI. That's going to pay for a lot of other programs that the hospital does. Right. You know, so within the hospital, there's some kind of subsidization where, where you have certain programs. You know, the, the MRI program is subsidizing the community health education program, you know, and that's, that's the kind of yeah. thing I think that would happen in these road networks that you would have, you know, the highways and the main thoroughfares or the more commercial streets that might subsidize maintenance of some of the residential streets, which are the people who are then feeding into those other uh, more profitable streets. So so that's one point. The, the second point is that if you do get to a point where something is just not being well managed by, let's say there's a trust owning it and they're just not making it work, I think within these opt-in trusts when they're created, there should probably be some means for them to essentially be you know, disbanded or, or essentially abandon the land where it could then be available for either homesteading or even they just, you know, maybe at that point, then it becomes an auction off to the highest bidder right. so that if it gets to a point where really nobody cares about this place, nobody wants to own it, then there should be a mechanism there where it could then be auctioned off to some company who's going to come in and, and could maybe turn it around and, and make it into something that can create value and generate revenue. Yeah. And that's where that market signal will come in that there's a baseline value of this property for some use, yeah. you know, whether it's for the current public use or for some other private use. Mm-hmm. Having that sort of market signal allows that trust to make that decision as to whether or not to preserve it or to divest it. Right. So the other objection I could see would be kind of from the other side saying, well, if you've got this ownership of these trusts, how do we prevent those from just turning into you know, new local governments in the vein of what Hoppe had argued previously? And I think that setting it up as an opt-in trust, right off the bat, you're limiting the scope of what that trust can do. And this is actually a benefit of having this be this sort of public ownership or, or an opt-in trust ownership over, let's say, a, an individual private ownership or even a corporate private ownership. And you kind of touched on this in your talk too, where if you had this sort of Hoppian ownership, you know, absolute ownership of this space, of these public spaces, then that's a much easier way to convert that into effectively a state than it would be if you have this opt-in trust, which is much more limited in what it can actually do with that space. You know, the fact that you're limiting the rights that this trust has actually is a benefit for ensuring that they won't be able to start to act like a state. Yeah, that's the hope. I mean, you know, the reason it's called opt-in trust is also that you can opt out of it, which of course you can't do now with, with states and governments so that if there are costs that are being borne by the owners of this property and somebody wants out of it, they can get out of it, yeah. which you can't do now and which you can't do in a homeowner association or a covenant community type of arrangement because there 
again, you're stuck where you live by paying homeowners fees to pay for the roads and whatever else within that development. Whereas with what I'm arguing with ownership of public space, you could have a mechanism where people who live there and use that public space aren't forced into being owners of those roads. They could just be users of those roads subject to user fees, which are established by the opt-in trust. And if they get to a point where they don't like the user fees, it's getting too high, then they can opt into ownership and try to work to change that and come up with a different way to do it. Yeah. And one of the questions you got was about if the opt-in trust doesn't have the right to evict someone from the space, then how can they enforce things like user fees? And I thought you gave a good response, but I just wanted to add to that, that under, I think, most libertarian theory, there's an expectation that there would be some sort of common law mechanism for adjudicating these sorts of disputes. So even if you can't throw someone off your property, you can take them to court and effectively charge them with trespassing because they're using that space. There's at a bare minimum some allowance for wear and tear that they would be expected to pay. And in addition to that, there would probably be some sort of capital recovery as well. So what I could see is under common law, you might have sort of a case history that builds up by which these third-party arbitrators establish essentially a fee structure so that there's established penalties for, say, trespassing on a public space without paying the appropriate fees. And again, this, this would create kind of a market signal as to what the appropriate fees for a given space should be. Because there's an equilibrium point where, let's say your user fees are, are you know, 20 bucks to access this thing, and all these people are trespassing on it, a judge is ruling that each of them has to pay you 10 bucks. What that tells you is, is that you're charging too much for this space. You're trying to charge 20, but according to a fair and reasonable judge, it's only worth 10. So this kind of creates a, a bit of a market signal, I guess, as to where that actual pricing should be. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point, And I think that's, that's certainly possible. Although I think it is maybe even simpler than that. I don't really think you need to get into trespassing everything. If you're talking about something like a road, you know, people who are coming in using that are accessing a service, essentially. There, you know, there have been improvements made there. There's maintenance, there's management costs, and you know, them using the road, they're the beneficiary of that. So for the road owner to charge them a fee, it's just like anybody using any other service. I mentioned hospitals. You go into a hospital, they look at you and they help you out and send you on your way. They send you a bill. You know, you pay the bill, um, <laughs> or if you don't pay the bill, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not allowed back into that hospital. It just means that they're going to come after you with a collection agency, and yeah, maybe they take you to court or have some other way of trying to collect that money from you. So the same thing could happen here, where there's an established fee for use of this service, which might be a road network, and if you don't pay it, then they can try to collect from you. And yeah, there could be lots of types of legal recourse, just like any other service provider would have. Now, the interesting question there is, you know, could they then essentially evict you or prohibit you from coming back onto their road? You know, I mean, I think it's probably likely that that's something that would develop under common law, that eventually if, if somebody is really just keeps using the roads without paying anything, that, yeah, eventually common law is probably going to recognize that this guy's just a deadbeat. Yeah. But essentially, that's a failure not of the public access to the road system. It's more a failure of the judicial system for being unable to enforce their judgments. So like you said, it's not any different than any other service that you use. And if you don't pay the money, it's expected that there's going to be some sort of system in place to recoup whatever you owe. Yeah, it's essentially a contractual agreement for people to come onto this property. And so people understand, you know, assuming that they're notified that there's some fee, there's some cost for using roads. Again, of course, we all pay costs now through gas taxes and everything else for roads. So 
Why should that be any different under private ownership? Yeah. There's always costs for using roads. It's just a question of how do you pay that and to who? Yeah. So to wrap things up, I think you did a great job of really developing the ideas that you introduced last year and have really put this into a more kind of coherent and cohesive framework that should be relatively easy for people to understand. <laughs> I think what you need to do with it now is to actually you know, write some sort of a paper on it, you know, submit it to whatever libertarian papers or quarterly journal <laughs> yeah. of Austrian economics or one of those things, you know, actually get this into the literature and get people talking about it. Cause it's really something that, that I think libertarian theory needs to deal with. Yeah. Let's, uh, I don't know, start a Kickstarter campaign or something. <laughs> Buy the book. <laughs> yeah. You, you can write a little pamphlet or something like that. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I would love to kind of put this all down more systematically and try to put it out there in the, in the literature. We'll see. This is definitely something I want to keep focusing on with our podcast. And I think this is something that we're, we're probably going to keep talking about for a while uh, here on Anarchitecture Podcast. Well, that's unless someone decides that it's a communist idea and they throw you out of a helicopter. Thanks for listening to Anarchitecture Podcast, the built environment of a stateless society. Visit anarchitecturepodcast.com to follow our blog and social media and find out how you can support us through Patreon or with cryptocurrency. What I'm proposing is this idea of opt-in trust. I have a bunch of slides here, but we have five minutes left. I'm going to go through this quickly and then we'll answer questions. Um, the idea here is that this is a form of non-governmental public ownership. It's essentially like a co-op. The idea is that anybody could establish an ownership share. Um, the key here is that it's at no cost. So essentially, someone creates a trust state, which is essentially a piece of paper that says, I'm going to form this organization. Um, anybody could, could sign up for that, um, or they could leave it anytime they wanted to. They could make decisions about how to run. And then, in terms of how the government property is that's the tier, essentially, you know, they're going to